Today I welcome Dr. Tara Christie Kinsey, Head of School, and Dr. Sarah O'Dell, Director of Faculty Practice and Research at the Hewitt School in the USA. In this episode, we talk about being mission-driven, the wonderful opportunities that girls-only education brings, the importance of research in schools, and how do we act on that research to change education by the girls leading the change. Tara, as head of school, you lead all the Hewitt School does. How do you make sure that you instill Hewitt's values at the school every single day? So, Simon, I loved this question and I smiled at this question because I actually wouldn't agree that I lead all that the school does. I think one of the things we're trying to do here at the Hewitt School is show that truly hierarchical leadership is very limiting. And I do not lead all that the school does. I lead the school, but I do not lead all that the school does. And I know that that might sound like semantics, but it's actually very important to our philosophy as a girls' school that is trying to disrupt some of the hierarchical norms that govern so many of our our institutions, our schools, our societies. So we're a deeply feminist in some way structure. We're a deeply democratic structure in some ways. Yes, I lead the school. I would say that before talking about values, I would love to talk about our mission. When I think about what we're trying to instill in our school every day, I go back to our mission. So our mission is to inspire girls and young women to become game changers and ethical leaders who forge an equitable, sustainable, and joyous future. Rewriting the school's mission was one of the priorities I undertook as head of school in 2018-19 in collaboration with our board and with a committee of lots of different people all over the community. But I believe a strong mission statement should not only clarify who you are, but also who you are not. And also what you care most about, which gets to the question of values, right? And I think our mission statement sounds different from a lot of schools because it is different. It's allowed us to make incredible hires. It's allowed us to attract mission-aligned students and families who care about the same things we care about as a school. And it's a very active mission. So the other part of your question, as I understand it, was also like, how do we make sure our values and our mission remain relevant? I will tell you that at many schools, there's a whole process for writing a mission and then we put it on the wall and no one really refers to it and no one really knows it. Our students, when they call meetings with administrators, start off with a PowerPoint presentation that is our mission. Like, So we're here to remind us what we're here to do here at this school and you're not walking your talk or you're not doing this or you're not living up to this. Wow, it's a living, breathing mission that is holding ourselves accountable for making the right kinds of decisions every day. So it's super relevant. Well, it's interesting. I mean, your your point about mission, I'm the same. I'm tired of corporate navel gazing of schools that talk around purpose. They talk around vision. They talk about mission. And then they, they list a dozen values and they go, don't we look and sound brilliant? And yet it's not embedded. They don't live it. They don't walk the talk. And you certainly don't feel it. And it's very interesting you talking about your students, the, these young women who actually will stand up and go, actually, this underpins everything we do. And I'm just going to remind you of it. I'm a purpose-led organization too. How do you go about instilling that? And I suppose there's leadership in there because you've got a guide. It's not about you dictating. It's about you leading and going, well, I've got to role model this too. Otherwise, it does just stick as a lot of words that sound good to important people without anybody representing what it is that you stand for? I think it's an awesome question. And it actually gets back to the arguably semantic 
issue I took with the question of, as head of school, I lead all aspects of the school. One of the major ways we walk our talk is that we actually do want people to become leaders, teachers, our leaders. Sarah O'Dell, Dr. O'Dell was saying that at our faculty meeting yesterday. I'm actually going to lob this one to you, Sarah. There's a couple ways, obviously, that we think about doing that. One of the ways that immediately came to mind, which also speaks to what Tara was referring to, and that we look for lots of ways for people to take ownership over different programs and aspects of the school, um, is that we've developed a really robust research program in the upper school, and that's a social science research program. So we have students in the upper school doing what's called student voice action research, which is the idea that students understand their experience the best. They are the PhDs in the Hewitt School, if you will. Because of that experience, they should actually have a voice in policy in the school. And my advisor at the University of Wisconsin, A.J. Welton, all of her research is actually in this area. And so we are now in our second year of the Hewitt Action Research Collaborative. Our students completed their first research project last year, which was around what does success mean at the Hewitt School. And they took that qualitative research question from our youth truth data, which is the institutional survey we give grades five through 12 every spring. And they went through that data, formulated a question, and then conducted almost 40 interviews in the high school. It's been really, I think, quite magical to see that I'm in spaces where we're with maybe a leadership team at the school and people are referring back to, Tara's referring back to, I'm referring back to, our upper school head is referring back to the data that students, you know, went out and got and analyzed. And how does that sort of align back to the, the mission piece? You know, talk about game changers, inspiration, all the, I mean, again, it sounds brilliant. I'm, I'm in. I've got four children. Two of my girls went to all girls schools. How do you represent that? You know, you've got the data. That's great. How do the girls live into your, your mission? The game changers that Tara talked about, this is how we're actually giving them the skills to do that. We often talk about the real world to students where they attend school is their that's their real world. We just did an exercise this morning where the students broke down the pieces of the survey and talked about all the questions they had. And they had more questions than I would challenge any PhD candidate, you know, because they know Hewitt. They know what it's like to be in school. And then because of that work that they're doing, they do things like they run faculty meetings. We had them run a faculty meeting last year. We had them present to Tara. We had them present to senior administrators at the school around the work that they've done. They will present to their peers on the work that they've done next month. And I think I've worked in other girls' schools. I'm a women's college graduate. And I think that this idea that by just not having boys at the school is enough, it doesn't mean enough anymore. We charge a lot of money. All of our schools charge a lot of money. And I also think that co-ed schools have really tried to think more holistically about gender dynamics, some with more success than others. And so we really have to think about what are we doing to enable the girls in our care to be the leaders that we need moving forward. I would just add to that, if I may, Simon, this concept of a game changer and an ethical leader. What we know about girls is that in this country, there is a big study, girls with the highest grades, the highest GPA are the least likely to speak up and disagree with someone for fear of not being liked. We think of that as a problem, right? So that you're pitting high achievement for girls against change making, positive change making. In other words, 
the girls who are the highest achievers in this country are the most concerned with the approval of others. We think that's a problem. And unfortunately, in girls' schools, that also happens. I mean, there are faculty members, not in our school, there are teachers who say, oh, I like teaching in a girls' school because girls are easier to teach. And I say, if that's your response, then you're doing it wrong. Because we socialize girls to please their parents. We socialize girls to please their teachers. And if pleasing others is the primary focus of how we raise and educate a girl, then we're doing it wrong. This concept of the Hewitt Action Research Collaborative, those young women are telling us what we need to do differently. We, the head of school, the board, what we need to do differently to show up better for them so that they can be honest, which is countercultural intentionally. And so when we talk about how do we live this idea of the game changer is that we actually are the only school in the country where girls are surrounded by educators who are specially trained to interrupt problematic gender socialization so that when a girl says, oh, how's everything? And the girl says, oh, everything's great. And they go, well, actually, our teachers know to listen for that cover voice, the voice that is nice, to get underneath it. And actually, I wonder if we can get to that at some point, because I think that's actually a huge aspect of what we're doing at Hewitt. Our girls sound different because they have more access to their real voice, not the cover voice that is expected of high achieving girls in this society. Yeah, definitely. I know, I know we're going to get on to a bit more about the research that you have, which I know is a differentiator. I mean, you mentioned that you brought in sort of boys' schools, co-ed schools, and there's girls-only schools. So, you know, it's a long-standing debate. It, which is better? You know, surely the right school is the right school for any child. And it doesn't matter whether it's a girls' school, a boys' school, or a co-educational school. You just got to make sure the environment, if, if you're a girls' school, is fit for purpose and relevant and the best possible environment for those girls to thrive. And it sounds like your mission is certainly going towards that, but also the way in which you lead and the way in which you, I suppose, inculcate this culture with these young women to allow them and enable them rather to be able to have their voice and to go through any barriers. I wanted to ask you, Tara, just around if you saw there was any conflict still and agendas with boys versus girls education. Is that something you're always facing and is, is it tiresome? I usually get a different question, which is, doesn't a girls' school just breed mean girls? And we actually have very little evidence that girls are meaner than boys. What we have evidence for is when an environment is inhospitable to the full actualization of a specific minoritized group, in this case, girls and women, they will turn on each other because there's too little opportunity for everyone to succeed. It happens not only with girls in environments that are toxic to them, whether that's a corporate structure or a school or whatever it is. If there's only one or two seats for a girl to be a leader or woman to be a leader, what do you think is going to happen? If you design an environment in which the principal design is, we are actually going to create an environment where there's an abundance of leadership opportunity for a very wide array of leadership styles for girls and women. The reverse is actually true. That's when you see girls and women forming authentic sisterhood and banding together to make collective positive change. And they mobilize for good. And that's what we're here about. I love that you didn't ask the mean girl phenomenon question, because that's another example of us personalizing or blaming girls and women for something that is actually environmental and societal. 
I'm surprised you get asked that question. I, I'm astonished you get asked that question, if I'm honest. Isn't it a shame, though, that that kind of question gets asked? It's nothing about capability or anything. It's just about, again, it's us stereotyping some behavior that we may have read or may, we just we believe it, we bought into the propaganda of what all girls are like, which is why, you know, we need schools like the Hewitt School and your leadership to change that perception. Do you think that girls then still get a rough ride? And what's it like in New York? I mean, I think we are making progress in society and it's an uphill battle. I think anything that's countercultural is going to feel a little bit like a salmon swimming upstream. I feel like the tension for me around questions like this is always that it can feel very doomsday-esque that we've made no progress. And that's certainly not the feeling I want anyone to have. But with all of that said, you know, and Tara talks about this a lot as well, the narrative in schooling is that girls are not the problem, right? And that girls are out achieving, sorry, boys. We now outnumber men in undergraduate universities in the United States. And when I actually arrived at the University of Wisconsin, where I did my PhD, one of the sort of research questions I had was around, I had come just from an all-girls school, and I wanted to know how you could replicate some of the things I saw working really well in that school in co-ed spaces. And I was immediately told, not by A.J. Welton, but a previous advisor who ended up retiring, that if I wanted to study girls in school, I wouldn't have a career as an academic because no one cares. And no one cares because girls do well in school. And that's the whole sort of narrative in the ed research. But my counter to all of that doesn't matter. Show me the evidence that girls doing really well in school has made any difference around any seats of power in the United States. We can't break through 20 women senators is about as many as we ever get in a given year. Always less than 35 CEOs on the Fortune 500. We've only had one Black female CEO, and she just retired. She was the CEO of Walgreens. There are now no Black women CEOs in the United States. And I have to mention, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade in our country, it's very hard to argue that women, I think, are better off as a class of humans in the U.S. In some ways, my mother had more rights than I did because she had Roe v. Wade was, you know, was enacted and, and was part of her life. And, you know, I have former students, I have friends, right, who are making decisions also now about where they can live in this country based on what that state's laws are right now, right? And so it's not all bad news. I also want to be realistic that this sort of oftentimes Pollyanna-ish narrative that because Harvard had a class of more women in it, that somehow all the problems have been solved. My first job also out of college was for Hillary Clinton, and I worked on her 20, geez, her 2008 campaign. And that was also, you know, coming out of Wellesley, the first time I experienced really harsh sexism. I was with her at a campaign event where someone yelled at her, iron my clothing. And as a 22-year-old, 21-year-old at the time, I was shocked by this. I didn't think this was the world we still lived in. What I'm really proud of is that we're actually taking this head on as a school and we're not being Pollyanna-ish about it with our students and with our families. And that part is really exciting to me. But I think we have to be real about what challenges women still are facing in all sectors of life. Have you read any of Caitlin Moran's books? Her most recent one, like What About Boys? I think it's a really disruptive view of actually how do we tackle the problem early on? And we're always you know, looking at how do we make an environment better for young women and girls, right? How do we make it better and for women already in the workplace? Rather than going, the root problem is, is that the boys are not taught. They're taught wrong, 
taught different things and their ideals and what they believe is to be normal is something that they kind of go through school and they come out and go, well, that's kind of what I know because no one showed me that this was the right way. Do you think that's a really good objective way of us trying to tackle the problem too? I think we need all angles coming at this, right? When you're going after societal change and we're saying, if you, you heard from Sarah, we're not engaged in the project that is a project at many schools, which is telling girls what they need to do differently. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to tell girls like you can do anything, you can do this. And then they come up against real and persistent and stubborn societal barriers. And they look at us and they say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And so how do you do that? You need to come at this in a a very multidisciplinary way. Sarah, I want to move on. I want to talk about the amazing work you're doing, particularly around the research. And that's a real differentiator that I've read and seen at the Hewitt School. Can you tell me a bit more about, again, how did you start off this program? And tell me what effect that's had at the school and maybe in your local community. I was not sure I wanted to return to independent schools when I was at the University of Wisconsin. And this is another story Tara has not heard. I actually wrote my statement of purpose to UW-Madison saying that for a long time, I thought I wanted to be the head of an independent school, but I no longer wanted my legacy to be to build the third swimming pool at X named school. You know, for me, this was not a sure thing. And then when I saw the job posted here, they really wanted a researcher who was embedded in the school. And that's the work that I loved doing at Wisconsin. It felt very purposeful. I loved talking to students and faculty and families about schooling experiences. I'd had sort of a radical awakening in the gender and women's studies department at the University of Wisconsin. They kind of busted open notions I had coming in about how gender operates in the world. And so it felt like a pretty amazing opportunity to do all of that work that happens oftentimes in higher ed, but be embedded in a school and trying to make it salient within the school at the same time. And that's obviously the disconnect folks usually run into in higher education is that they're not making their research come alive in the schools. And that's always a perpetual question when I still go to academic conferences to present the work that we're doing is a lot of other researchers are really struggling with how to partner with schools, how to make that research happen. Well, I'm here. You can see you saw students walking by early. <laughs> so the research lives in the school. The easiest way to think about why it's so different, there are other schools with centers. They do great work. And I don't want to minimize that anywhere else. What's different about what Hewitt is doing, other centers mostly will take existing research coming out of universities and then try to disseminate it and make it live in the programming at the school. We are partnered with researchers at Hewitt, through Hewitt. And then I am also conducting, along with my postdoc, Darren Sear, original research at the school, which is then embedded in the programming that we're doing. And there really is nobody else that is doing that. We did do some research last year to see, are there other schools that are thinking about it this way? And there really isn't. Institutional researchers have kind of become a more pertinent position within independent schools, but that's really not what I do. I'm not surveying alumni although that may eventually become part of work that happens through the center. I'm really trying to get us thinking about as a community, what practices do we engage in? Are they working? And how do we make them better? And it's really, I can't think of a more responsive school as a result, because we're constantly gathering evidence and analyzing it and thinking about how do we do things better and differently. 
which actually gives our girls and young women the clear message that when we ask them how it's going, we're actually going to do something about their responses, right? So a lot of schools say, oh, we center girls' voices. We actually put them at the center of decision-making, which gives them a sense of they can actually speak their minds and know that we are listening and we are going to try to meet them where they are to better serve them. That engenders a kind of partnership that is itself a closing of a hierarchy that is designed to really elevate the girl's voice and actually say, you have something to say and the adults really need to pay attention to what you have to say and watch us move as the result of what you say. You have to override certain preferences, but there are others where you're like, you know what, you're right. And I think that's a really great model for education. I think that I think being more student-centered, student-led, you know, we need to teach them to fail because yeah, we already teach them to succeed. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Have you got any good examples of some of the research that you've used to actually improve the students' experiences? Two projects sort of immediately come to mind. One of them was around the fact that the survey that we give every spring, we use the Youth Truth uh, Survey, um, which is a student perception survey. In the three years that we've given it, Black girls at the school have said that discipline practices at the school are unfair. And actually, when I was hired at Hewitt, I was told this was a priority in terms of getting to the bottom of it and then intervening around it. And so last year, through a grant from the Klingenstein Center for our independent school leadership, we worked with a colleague of mine at the University of Delaware, who has a lot of experience in this area, working mostly with large public school districts around discipline practices. And she's also a quantitative scholar, which I am not. I can read it, but I can't do it. But Lauren actually took the files we had from Youth Truth and did a secondary level of analysis. We wanted to know were there other intersections of identity that were amplifying that experience, such as, you know, Black students who maybe were also queer, Black students on financial aid, that sort of thing. She did that secondary level of analysis for us. And then she and my postdoc did qualitative interviews with Black students in our middle and upper schools to ask them about their experience at the school. And through that, Lauren then designed two days of professional development based on our own data, interviews and quantitative data. First about what are we seeing in the data was the first day of that. And then the second day, what are possible ways to intervene around that? And I just was so proud of that work because to what Tara is saying, nobody else is doing this. And I think what it also speaks to, it's courageous to do this work. I'm just going to say it that way because I believe it because we're having to look at parts of the school that people oftentimes don't want to talk about out loud. But I don't know, Simon, how else you get better at what you're doing. But still having the ability to do it and come out and talk about it openly. Nothing that certainly I take for granted. I don't know. I don't know about others, but I really have appreciated Tara's support in that and the support of the senior administrative team. And I think also our faculty have been incredibly open to this work. And then the other one that I'll say, which Tara was alluding to earlier, is we are partnered with Carol Gilligan at NYU, who was someone who advised my own research. 
And Carol did a study almost 40 years ago at this point at the Laurel School in Ohio, where she was trying to understand girls' development because all of the psychological research at that point was about boys' development. And one of the things in my conversations with Carol is that the schools did not really take up the findings of her research. And so she wanted to come back, given this moment in the country, both with the overturning of Roe, also a CDC report came out last winter that girls are experiencing the worst rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide in the history of the U.S. Department of Education and the CDC giving this survey. And so Carol said, I want to get back talking to girls. And so she's done the pilot interviews here. We're also partnered with the Windsor School in Boston and the Young Women's Leadership Academy, which is a public school in East Harlem. And she is interviewing our students. She's had some preliminary findings, which we have started to talk about in our community, and one of which I'm happy to share on the podcast. I hope she's okay with that. I think she will be. Let me ask you this, Simon. Of all of our students, both at here and at Windsor, when Carol asked them, what is one thing you would change in the whole world? What do you think they answered? And this is like anything, climate change, politics, racial violence, like pick anything. What do you think the girls said? I'm going to say climate. They said that they wish they could change other people's judgments about them. That was the consistent finding from our girls. And I think, you know, in some ways we make work around gender equity much harder than it has to be. This is really what our girls are concerned with and feel like they're facing. So we've had a lot of conversations around these early findings from Carol about what does that mean in terms of how our students interact with one another and with their teachers. I think that the other thing I would add to that is that if you just take a step back and you talk about this concept that Hewitt is using research in a different way to be institutional truth tellers. I know, Simon, you work with lots of schools. Education is a highly feminized workforce. So when you think about the concept of using research to be more honest about what's actually going on in the school, it's actually a conscious disruption of a mostly female workforce that has been socialized themselves to be dysfunctionally polite and not speak up and disagree. And so it's liberatory in lots of ways, not just for the students, but for a still highly feminized workforce that was never taught themselves to speak up and disagree, to engage in hard truths. We were even having this conversation yesterday at the faculty meeting. One of the things I'm so proud of is that we are more honest because we're willing to look at these hard truths and do something about them. That's been very helpful for the leadership development of even our employees. Can I ask you how easy is it to implement some of the research findings that you have? Because a school, it feels like it's in constant change, which is good because the world is changing. But at some point you need to go, well, this is good, but we can't do everything because you're going to burn everyone out because you know, you're trying to achieve so much. How do you distill this and go, what comes into the academic program? What do we need to deal with now? What gets shelved? What gets put off? I mean, what's that process? Not to be trite, but I think it honestly comes back to mission and values, which is what you started off asking Tara about. And that's what has to be at the center of how you're picking which items to work on. I also think that this is my third year at the school, that actually this process, which sometimes is referred to as improvement science, it's the plan, do, study, act model that that's actually going to become a value for educators at the Hewitt School. We are on our road to becoming that way. We also do instructional rounds, which are being launched this year with the faculty. 
they are going to be looking at video of one another and asking questions about evidence and what's going on. And, you know, have you thought about this or have you considered that? It's a real conundrum, particularly coming out of the pandemic where, you know, teachers, the Gallup poll showed that teachers are the most burned out of the first responder professions coming out of COVID. But I think at least what I'm coming around to, I've also not instituted this in a school previously, and I can't really point to another school that's doing the work or has done the work the way that we're doing it. What I'm hearing from faculty right now is they actually feel more solid in the decisions that they're making as a result because they're based in evidence. That's ultimately what will be the center of all of this work. And that's not something I could have foretold you a year ago, but they feel better about how they're responding to students because it's not sort of a feeling or tradition or those other things often in independent schools become the way that we guide our work. They have data, they have evidence to make good decisions about how to work with our students. And Tara, how do you kind of lead all that change? Because, you know, you are still the head of the school, you know, with all this exciting stuff going on, something you know, ultimately there will be a decision or it needs to sit within a framework. Do you find that part of your job easy? But there's some really great things that come out that you just can't do. Absolutely. I actually was going to say that. I feel like part of what I was talking about earlier is that I think in general, as a woman head of school, I have to be aware of my own socialization about wanting to please and actually saying, no, that's a great idea, but actually we're not going to do that. And here's why. It's something that I have actually committed to in my own leadership journey saying, you know, actually this research, as well as leading with a clear request from our board of trustees to give us clear charge so that I can lead from a clear place. Here are three strategic priorities. That's a great idea. We're going to put that on hold because this is what we're focused on. Being able to say no, not forever, but for now, it's a no. Maybe we can come back to that is I think the only way that you can lead because there are a thousand ideas and you'll get just get nipped to death by a thousand ducks if you say yes to everything. And that's also life, right? That's life. You know, there'll always be lots of ideas. People have ideas and at some point you're going to have to disappoint, but you can't do everything. And I think there is a more of a, an expectation with this 24-7 society that everything has to be done now immediately. I need an answer. Why haven't I got an answer? Why is it not available? All I'm ever trying to do is shooting my own children. As I always say that, I said, what if you do is put your oxygen mask on first? I said, there's so much noise. There's so much distractions. All of these things are pulling at you. And that's why my boys and my girls has just said, whatever you do, you've just got to go, is this good for me? Put your oxygen mask on and then you can figure out the rest because some things can drop. Yeah, no, I love that you just use that phrase oxygen mask because it came up last night in our panel that we hosted with the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Whole other conversation there. But The other thing I would say, how do I lead this, is I think it's really, really important to have strong, trust-based relationships with the people who are directly reporting to you. I can't have a very, very close relationship with all 130 employees at the Hewitt School, but I can have a really strong relationship with the people who report directly to me so that there's trust and there's open communication and it's okay to be messy and make mistakes and learn and grow. When people don't feel safe in that, that's when things go wrong. And if you have that safety in your relationships, you actually don't necessarily need to put your own oxygen mask on. As it was pointed out to me last night on our panel, 
if you're in really good relationships, the other people are going to be right there saying, hey, you need an oxygen mask. Let me put that on for you. I got your back. I just can't help thinking about the paradox that you live with, Tara, because, you know, you talked about societal and, you know, the idea of pleasing, but you have to lead, you have to make decisions that may not please people. Is that just something that goes around your head all the time going, I can't conform to what society thinks I need to say, but are they judging me because I'm saying this because I think I'm pleasing or am I making a decision because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you leadership and I'm going to make a decision. You may not be happy. How do you juggle with that? Sarah has heard me talk about this. I actually wrote a piece about this and I took Roosevelt's famous man in the arena speech. It's not the critic who counts and not the person who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the woman. (laughs) I changed it to woman. The credit belongs to the woman who is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. So I actually had to have this moment at some point in my own leadership where I said, you know what, if I am going to listen to every person in the arena who is far away from the center of the arena, who's hurling criticisms and questions and this and that and ideas, and they're not going to actually get into the arena with me and roll their sleeves up and be a part of it, then I'm actually going to discount that kind of feedback. I'll take it in. I'm actually going to spend my time saying, you know what, if you want to be a part of solving this problem that you just brought to me, come on in and let's try and figure this out. But if you just want to come in safe from afar and just hurl a mean-spirited criticism from afar, I'm not going to listen to your feedback. And that has been helpful to me as a woman leader. I know that I was socialized and still am to respond and take care of. And I actually need to take charge, not just take care. It's about, I'm listening to you. I'm staying connected to you. If you want to be a part of this solution, come on in. Don't do a flyby. Don't do a flyby. I think you should have that on a t-shirt. Well, actually, it's called the swoop and poop. You just swoop in, poop on something, and then swoop on out. We actually go, we call that the swoop and poop. Oh, and there's so many of those armchair spectators just, just completely just get involved. I want to talk about the future, really, the vision piece. And you know, you're already doing some exciting things. Just tell me what other exciting things you've got planned maybe over the next five to 10 years at the Hewitt School. We are in the process of rolling out a K through 12 girls leadership toolkit, in part because girls schools, as you know, Simon, talk a lot about leadership. But if I pulled one of their faculty members off the street and said, where is it being taught? A lot of them, I think, would be challenged to tell you where that's happening. And so I spent uh, last year working with two women, Jessica Grounds and Kristen Haffert, who make up a team called Mind the Gap. And they work with huge companies like Amazon Web Services and Walmart to create more gender equitable practices. And so they have all the research on what is happening to women post-college, pretty much in terms of the pipeline. And I went to them and said, could we create a toolkit that incorporates the research about the biases that women face later in life? We're rolling that out this year in our middle school specifically, because that is the age group developmentally where girls start to separate their voice from their emotions and and their knowledge. And it's this idea of like, they say, I don't know. And you ask girls sort of 12, 13, and what they'll tell you is, I don't know. And what Tara had mentioned earlier is if you press them, they'll say, well, actually, or if I were to tell you the truth, 
And so we're really trying to bolster that age group in terms of helping them basically learn skills that will not only enable them to overcome those socialization practices, but skills that when they're 20, 30, 40 years old, they can lean back on when they're experiencing that bias in the workplace. This is the first toolkit of its kind, and it's an educator-focused toolkit. It's not about changing the girls. It's about changing teacher practices so that they're teaching girls in a way that interrupts all these socialization practices. My PhD was in gender and school leadership. And so there are plenty of programs out there that are about pretzeling women into conforming into a biased system. And part of my task here at Hewitt has been to rethink that. We don't want our girls to think that they're the problem. There are plenty of places where they'll get that message anyway, but Hewitt will not be one of them. So that's something we're really excited about and seeing how that takes shape within our school. And then continuing our partnership with Carol Gilligan, I think is going to be transformative, not just for us and for Windsor and the Young Women's Leadership Academy, but it's going to be transformative for girls' education globally. We're really trying to think at this phase, why did the work not get taken up last time? And then how do we operationalize it in classes? So I am working with one of our other research partners on what are the classroom practices teachers need to engage in to interrupt those socialization issues. So those are things I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's super exciting. Just quickly headline, when is the leadership toolkit going to be available for K through 12 schools? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we're certainly talking about. We want to be a destination employer and also a destination for people to be educated about how best to work with girls. So I don't want to overpromise, but we are certainly in talks about maybe either this coming summer or the summer after offering some sort of summer workshop for educators who want to do this type of work. For me, I always come back to the question kind of what breaks my heart as a starting point. And that's what I usually get excited about. It's actually why I'm in girls' school. It just breaks my heart to see the persistent leadership confidence gap that we are seeing here. Another thing that breaks my heart and which points to a priority is the top three words that high school students use to describe how they're currently feeling in school is tired, bored, and stressed. In independent schools, and specifically at our school, we have the opportunity to do something about that. Tired, bored, and stressed should not be the words. Our high school has grown significantly as a result of the culture that we're building. In my, my ninth year, we've almost doubled the size of our upper school. And we're still a small school. We have about 50 students now graduating in each class. What I am excited about is working in partnership with teachers to design learning experiences that are not built in silos, but that are responding to real needs in the world. As Bill Damon at Stanford, he says, the biggest problem growing up today is not actually stress, it's meaninglessness. And in schools, we have this opportunity to create meaning every day. And no kid saying, why do I need to learn this? Because it's so obvious why we need to learn it, because we need you to learn and care about this thing that is real in the world. And so we're designing a curriculum around real world problems that actually require our students to develop mastery so that they can actually put some of their learning into practice in the real world and doing more, you know, experiential work. And that's specifically exciting for girls and women, because if we're backtracking and we're saying we're designing programs that are in part responding to fields in which women are historically underrepresented, then we're actually in the practice of building stronger pipelines for women to start to close some of those gaps. And we may be a little school, but I think we're punching well above our weight class in that regard. 
Yeah, sounds fantastic. I've got one final question to pose to you both, and I'm going to go with you, Tara, first. I want you to look into your crystal ball, and I want you to tell me what you think the future of education would look like in 2050. What's going to be the same? What's going to be different? Yeah, the heads of school who have gone through pandemic school all actually made a pact that we were never again going to answer a crystal ball question but I will answer yours. (laughs) I think that education in 2050 will be highly, highly customized and personalized the way that we're seeing in medicine. And I think that we're going to see a lot more a la carte education, a lot more specialized education, and a lot more disruption between that pipeline between K-12 and college. We're going to see many more apprenticeships I think it's going to be more customized, more personalized, more a la carte. And it's not going to be this kind of uh, smoking gun relationship between high school and college. I think content is going to matter less and less, both with the advent of what's happening around artificial intelligence. But also, my mother couldn't get over the fact that when I was doing my dissertation work, I never physically went to the library. Um, You know, everything from the journals was available at home to me through my computer. Data is going to be so more and more and more readily available at our students' fingertips that it's going to be about what questions they're asking, the way that they're sifting through data, as opposed to memorizing or, you know, being able to know that World War II started on X and such date. They have their phones, they're going to have more access to data, and it's going to be about the sifting and winnowing. I hope both your predictions come true. I'm a great supporter of both those. So just leads me to thank you both Sarah Tara thanks ever so much for finding the time to join me on the Inspiring Schools podcast you can connect with me on Twitter Instagram and via LinkedIn remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now